Well, let's bow our heads before this faithful friend of ours. Thank you, living Lord Jesus. Thank you, loving Lord Jesus. Thank you for your presence, living presence with us. Gather our hearts, our thoughts. Gather us, Lord. And as you do so, please, in your mercy, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, here we are headed into Lent. Those 40 days between now and Easter, excluding the Sundays, we've got 40 days. Don't waste your time right now working that out. And what traditionally the church has done, the church international, is to take those 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted and apply that period of time with some austerity, some denial, some extra effort made to spend time with the Lord as preparation across a 40-day period for the great event of Good Friday and Easter, the weekend that changed the world. So that's what we're about to begin. So we have these special Wednesday services. I'm thrilled, given the weather, how many of you are out this evening. And each Wednesday evening, we will have at 5.30 in the cafe, variety of soups served week by week. That's an opportunity for us to get here, have a light meal, some measure of austerity to it, just some soup, unless you've got kids, and then we have hot dogs. And then to come at 6.30, and we'll be meeting in Wilson Hall all the way to Maundy Thursday, when we will have that great drama of the Last Supper, the living Last Supper here. We'll meet in Wilson Hall Wednesday by Wednesday, and we are considering together what Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, describe as the fruit of the Spirit. Those are famous verses. Somewhere along the way, most of us get to memorize those verses. And when it speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's really dis- describing what life looks like for us when Jesus takes over. The more we become like Jesus, the more we look like those descriptives of what the fruit of the Spirit manifest.
And week by week, there are nine of those gifts, so a couple of weeks or so, we'll have more than one discussed. This, this evening, we're going to be looking at the premier gift of the Spirit, by which all the other gifts are somewhat measured. Not exactly gifts, but fruit, as it's described here. Let me read the text to you from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And one person has taken and brilliantly made this description of love by using all the other words that are here and that we'll be looking at week by week. Joy is love's strength. Peace is love's security. Long-suffering is love's patience. Gentleness is love's conduct. Goodness is love's character. Faith is love's confidence. Meekness is love's humility. And temperance is love's victory. Well, we're going to be looking at love as that first fruit of the Spirit. And incidentally, you notice that the fruit is singular. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Just as the Spirit is singular, the Holy Spirit. And it's the presence of God in our lives via His Spirit that we are able to produce these fruits fruit, these ninefold fruit, singular. John chapter 15 describes being engrafted into Jesus. Outside of being joined, engrafted into Jesus, there is no way that we can be fruitful or productive. As Jesus says in that context, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the fruit is the byproduct of the presence of the Lord in our lives, His Spirit working in us to produce fruitful lives. Those lives looking more and more like Jesus. Love, the word here, agape, is the same word that describes God so loving the world that he gave his son to die on the cross for us. Most of you know that in the language of Greek, there are different words describing love because there are different kinds of loves. There's romantic love, there's brotherly love, there's familial love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about the four loves. 
The last of them, this agape, is God's kind of love, sacrificial love, a giving love. Lewis wrote in The Four Loves these words, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart, intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up, your heart, safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So love of any kind is a risky business. But the kind of God, love that God exhibited in sending his son to die for us is deliberately sacrificial. It's the laying down of your life. And that's the word that's used here. The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. Agape love. And just as we've read about those parallels, love being, lo uh, yes, love, joy being love strength, and peace being love security and so on, you have these words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love, this love, reigns supreme. The close of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Now there abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, it's that same word, agape, the greatest of these is love. So that love reigns supreme. To love God is to adore him. And the first and great commandment and it uses this very word again, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The object of that love, sacrificial love, is in the first place Almighty God himself. And the battle immediately rages whenever we're asked to surrender our lives by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the battle rages between who's going to run my life, whether it's him or me. And most of us resist handing over our lives to him, abandoning, abandoning ourselves to him, trusting him entirely because we want to run our lives for ourselves. We know it's risky giving him the steering wheel of our lives because he's not always going to steer us where we think we should go or want to go. Coming to Jesus Christ and putting our trust in him is surrendering ourselves to him. It's not simply intellectually believing in him. It's throwing wide open the doors of our lives for Christ to come and dwell in us and take possession of us. To love God with all our mind, to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, is to give ourselves over to him in toto, in adoration. To love him. What was the big temptation right at the heart of those temptations Jesus suffered? Satan took him to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Their power, their magnificence, their allurements, their attractiveness. And in tempting Jesus, he was really offering him another way than the cross. You fall down and worship me, and all this will be yours. What did Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the battle that we enjoin as we're encountered with the love of God in Christ Jesus is whether we will love him more than the world around us with all its allurements and attractions, with its power, its enticements, its sin. Will we love God in such a way that we will lay down our lives for him, put him first. Listen to these words. Does this sound like your Sunday? The worshiper attends faithfully every Sunday. Oblivious to those around him, he concentrates intently in the object of his worship. All week he has prepared for this moment. He has read about the one he adores. He has talked about this day with others. And when he leaves hours later, his face is aglow with praise and thanksgiving for what he has experienced. His team won 13-10. Football fans on Sunday often reflect a truer attitude of worship than the average Christian. When the worship of God is superseded by the worship of a game, something is wrong.
A.W. Tozer, a very famous author and preacher from the middle 1900s, he said this, speaking about worshiping God, he called it admiration because the dictionary defines admiration to regard with wondering esteem accompanied by pleasure and delight to look at or upon an ele- with an elevated feeling of pleasure. According to his definition, God has few admirers among our Christians today. This was his observation. He goes on to say, just as long as the worshiper is engrossed with himself and his own concerns, he is a babe. So the love that we're speaking of here that the fr- is a fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God produces in us is in the first place a love for Almighty God. Outside of that Spirit working in us, there is no way that you and I are going to choose God over the world. And as we come to the Scripture and it addresses us, any capacity that you and I have, as we put our minds to it, is generated by that engrafting into Christ, entrusting ourselves to him, so that by his Spirit, he may work in us and produce in us Christ-likeness, that we will make the same tough decision Jesus made, not to be attracted to the worship of the world, but recognize that we worship the Lord. As you know, the second half of that commandment, the one that's like unto it, is to love our neighbor as ourself. And just as I've called worship adoration, this loving our neighbor as ourself, I've called availability. To be available to the Lord, to be used, to be available to other people according to their needs. When you come to the life of Jesus again, one of the most extraordinary things is this. And as you read the Gospels, you follow along and recognize how true this statement is. That most of what Jesus did and most of what he even said was while he was on his way to go somewhere else and do something else. You follow that along. On our Sunday mornings, we're going to be having encounters with Jesus. (laughs) Nearly all those encounters were not encounters that Jesus sought. They were people all the way from the first one, Nicodemus, intruding on his life. He came to Jesus at night, after dark, intruding on his space, Probably an inconvenient time. And along the way, when people come to get healed, or ask Jesus to go with them to do some healing, or they get in on his space and in his face, his response is to take the time, i.e., that is, to be available to them. If we will be available, It means we're going to sacrifice 
our time for what it is they need. We hate to sacrifice our time. We're on our way to get done what we want to get done. And we're used to scheduling our time. And to sacrifice that, to be available, to love people in the way that they need to be loved. There is a cost associated with it, but that's exactly what the word means. Sacrificial love. It's not a nice feeling. It's not about feelings. It is about tough decisions to be loyal and faithful to God and his word. The fruit of the Spirit produces that kind of love. God at work in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is that masterpiece defining love, two things as you look at that. When it says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. That early description of God's love demonstrates how other-oriented that love is. It's again that same word, sacrificial love. Selfishness does boast, is proud, is enviousness. When we're self-centered, we're easily angered. We do keep a record of wrongs. We are self-seeking. When we're other-oriented, then we bypass those things because our hearts and minds are focused on as love is described here, not ourselves, but others. To grow up and mature. When it goes on in this passage to say, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things, left childish ways behind me. What's the hallmark of a child? The whole universe revolves around a child. Feed me. Give me. A mother was saying concerning her toddler this week in our home group that that toddler is demanding as long as she's awake. You can't be on your schedule if you've got a toddler in the house. You're on their schedule. So you end up sacrificing your life for that child's life. Meanwhile, the child in its childishness is all about the child. But when you grow up, when you mature, it's not about you anymore. It's about the Lord in the first place and your availability to serve him secondly. I once heard the humorous description of a thunderstorm at night, a big, powerful one, and the parents running to the child's room to see if the child was okay. 
When they went into the room, the child was spread-eagled across the window, climbed up on the windowsill, leaning up against the window. And the parents said, what on earth are you doing? The child said, God's out there trying to take my photo. I mean, the whole storm was about him. We often see life like that. To be other-oriented. Let me close with this encounter that I had with a chap who was with us in Israel. In fact, last week, I flew down to Birmingham, Alabama to bury him. He had died just a week ago. But the memory of that man, vivid to me, is in his traveling around in the Holy Land with us. And we were at the Sea of Galilee where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, met with his disciples and took Peter to one side and asked him three times, do you love me? And I point out at that place that what Jesus is doing is reinstating Peter. Because just days before, at the house of Caiaphas, before the crucifixion and before the resurrection, Peter denied the Lord three times. And as Jesus was led away, he looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered and he went off and wept bitterly, sobbing, broken. He had denied his Lord three times. So now Jesus meets Peter on the Sea of Galilee. And he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter answered him, I love you. I love you. You know I love you. Well, as with our trip that a group of us are going on after Easter to the Holy Land, We're going to finish up in Rome where Peter was executed, martyred. Well, on that occasion, we had our final dinner together in the hotel. We had a room to ourselves. The meal was to be brought in and catered and served to us. And each evening at the meal, I would ask one of our entourage to give thanks. And that evening, I asked this man if he would give thanks. The man we buried last week. And he was a typical good-hearted businessman, being very successful. He'd gone to church much of his life. So we asked him, I asked him to say grace. And we're standing around in a circle holding hands. And he said, Dear Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you. People began to weep. 
And that's all he said. That was the end of his grace. To love God is the heart and soul of our relationship with him. To recognize what Christ has done and the desire of Christ by his spirit for us that we might love the Lord. Love him, love him, love him. Bow your heads with me and let's pray together. So dear Lord Jesus, as we make our way to Calvary, and even in this communion service, this communion service, it's as if we stop and go back in time and join you at the cross and remember your dying love for us. Grant to us, Lord Jesus, to respond this evening by your grace, by your spirit at work in us as we come and kneel down before you. Grant that we might say from the bottom of our hearts, Lord Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you.